This podcast is the exclusive property of Wild Law Pod LLC. No portion of this podcast should be rebroadcast or reproduced without the express permission of Wild Law Pod. Well, welcome to Wyoming Law Pod. Today's guest is Dennis Ellis. Uh, the goal of today's podcast is to give an overview of one lawyer's career spent primarily in public relations, with a focus on giving lawyers considering a career or even just dabbling in public relations an idea of what to expect what skills and abilities they should bring to the table, what obstacles they may need to overcome, and just some nuts and bolts things like how to charge for your time and how to set up a fee agreement to make sure you're doing public relations work and not creating an attorney-client relationship. So my guest today, Dennis Ellis, recently joined the Microsoft TechSpark Initiative as the Cheyenne Wyoming Community Engagement Manager. He came to Microsoft from a public relations firm he founded Ellis Public Public Affairs, where he consulted for clients such as Walmart, Google, Denver Children's Hospital, Johnson & Johnson, and Anadarko. Prior to his return to Wyoming, Dennis served as Deputy Attorney General for External Affairs in the Colorado Attorney General's Office and in Governor Bill Owen's Cabinet as the Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. He got an assistant Labrador Retriever Teal, um, assisting with a few distractions here today. Um, the organization was tasked with protecting the environment and the public health of Colorado. Dennis Ellis also served as legislative director and counsel for the United States Representative Barbara Cuban. Dennis is a Wyoming native, where his family has owned a sheep and cattle ranch for over 110 years. He is married to Wyoming Senator Affie Ellis and is the father of three wonderful children. He holds an undergraduate and law degree from the University of Wyoming. He serves on the steering committee of the Wyoming Business Alliance. He's the past president of the Wyoming Ag in the Classroom and past vice president of the Petroleum Association of Wyoming and currently serves as a mixed martial arts commissioner. So welcome, Dennis. Thanks for having me, Justin. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited too. It seems like in a time when lots of lawyers who have taken traditional roles are very unhappy and very unsatisfied with the choices they make, this would be a perfect time to talk about some alternatives in the career path that you've chosen. Uh, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about what you're doing with uh, TechSpark and Microsoft in Wyoming? Yeah, I'd be I'd be glad to. <clears throat> so I joined Microsoft back in November of 2017, so I'm a bit new in the role. Uh, most people know that Microsoft has a data center just west of town, um, out by the Walmart Distribution Center, and they basically uh, what occurred was the the company saw you know this huge rift that we're all we're all seeing you know it's, it emanates in politics but it exists in a lot of facets on social media you know there's a lot of division in the country and a lot of it emanates from you know sort of the coastal areas have had a ton of economic uh, opportunity and you know middle America or rural America whatever you'd like to term it has maybe being left behind from that opportunity so you see you see locations like San Francisco Boston um, Seattle you know, there, there's wild amounts of economic opportunity there. And they, these cities become magnets where, um, you know, oftentimes people think, oh, with the internet, you know, folks will just locate their small business in Powell, Wyoming. And there may be some of that going on, and we certainly need to pursue that as a state. But what you tend to find is that the very intelligent, you know, tech types magnetize to one another, and so they all sort of flock to the cities. Um, this sort of emanated in the... In the um, election where you know you had trump elected which was surprising to some and, and not surprising to others 
but what you do see is that in these rural parts of the country, um, people who have, say, a high school or lower level of education since the early 80s, they've lost 25% of their job opportunities in the country. When you look at people who have a college education, they've increased about a thousand percent in terms of job opportunities. And so as we sort of head into this, we're sort of at the dawn of the fourth industrial revolution where things are going to change faster in the workforce than they perhaps have in a hundred years um, since, since Henry Ford, you know, invented the combustible engine and the assembly line. And, you know, out of that third industrial revolution, we invented high schools. We invented higher education as we know it at Princeton and Yale and Harvard. Um, so there's a lot of changes coming and they're going to come very quickly. The idea of our TechSpark program is to place six pilot communities, um, Cheyenne being one, Quincy, Washington, which is sort of eastern Washington, uh, Fargo, North Dakota, Appleton, Wisconsin, which is in the Green Bay, Re Green Bay region, um, Boyden, Virginia, which is very southern rural Virginia, and then El Paso, which is a, you know has a border town and Fort Bliss, so interesting in its own way. And our intent is to go into these communities and, and listen, you know, to what some of the challenges are in rural America, try to engage with these communities, innovate, um, partner, and then come up with a recipe of, you know, things that a community can do in rural America to try and bridge from this traditional economy into this di new digital economy. And so there's several factors we work on, you know, broadband deployment. If you're not connected to the internet affordably, you can't participate in this economy, and that's just a fact. There's 23 million Americans in rural America who do not have connectivity. Um, you, you can't even begin to talk about having a job in this new economy if there's no internet. Um, we're looking at digital skills, which Wyoming is a, a national leader on to try and give opportunity for computer science for kids. It, and it's not for tech's sake, it's that if you're gonna be a nurse, a teacher, a fireman, tech is gonna invade into those areas. They're gonna change how that job is done. And so the future of those work the future of work in those jobs will change, and so we need our kids to have basic digital skills. We're working on uh, career pathways in more of the adult space that if your job is displaced from, you know, I mean, hydrofracking really displaced coal quite significantly. So we've seen that in Wyoming, and we understand what this can be like, um, but maybe you're a truck driver, maybe you're a mason. You know, there's all sorts of jobs where technology will be deployed to do some of the manual tasks, automated tasks, and so you need to have digital skills to be able to upskill and reskill and have a job in this new economy. Jobs we don't even know what they are yet. Um, so why does Microsoft need someone with your skill set to help accomplish those goals in a place like Wyoming? Yeah, so one thing they did that was very interesting was they hired uh, local people that know, you know, have relationships in the community, understand the community, and then our big challenge is to learn Microsoft as a client. And they're, you know, they're in the Fortune 25 list. There's 139,000 employees in something like 140 countries. And so it's a very unique, large entity uh, to represent in this community. Um, I feel like the, the part that they enjoy me having me on board is that I have a lot of sort of facilitation skills. I have the ability to connect people to people and then people to ideas. And that's almost the most basic, basic form of advocacy. You know, when you think of being an attorney, you're an advocate, right? That's almost a synonymous term. Um, but it's very limited to be a traditional lawyer when you're just in the courtroom setting or perhaps in a negotiation or a, a deposition. Um, I learned all those skills in law school, but I've applied them in areas that are non-traditional to law in the sense that um, I'm typically not in these divisive, combative, you know, where you're advocating for your client to the, you know, tooth and nail, which is, is everybody's ethical job. Um, but what I found is 
you know, what helps me enjoy my job is to connect people and resolve these problems in a, in a sort of different mediated way or facilitated way. Well, I would think one of the difficulties for a company like Microsoft, and I've even experienced it traveling to different areas in Wyoming, but it can almost feel like a, a closed shop when you come to such a small, closely knit community, which even mm-hmm. as an entire state, Wyoming kind of is. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I, you know, the it's probably an overused joke, but uh, Governor Sullivan was the first person I heard say it, that Wyoming's just a small town with very long streets. And so I've tried to impress that on Microsoft that while we're focused, you know, uh, and landed in Cheyenne to work on this project, we're trying to reach out into several communities in the state. And so we've we've tried to we'll be standing up this fall computer science programs in Buffalo, Wyoming, Douglas, Wyoming, uh, Natrona County High School, and Laramie High School. And you know, as part of this push to provide computer science opportunity for kids, um, and a lot of my job, you know, like many lawyers, is to try and help people access these networks. You know, as a local person, you know, it, as as you know, anybody knows, the first thing we do as Wyomingites is we talk about where are you from, and if you say you're from Powell, Wyoming, I'll say, well, my roommate's from Powell, Wyoming, and we both know that same gentleman we instantly have no barrier and we trust one another at a, at a pretty decent clip just because I might know your dentist or I might know your dad or your uncle or your cousin. And so it's that one degree of separation in Wyoming. I think that's why it's so important, you know, to hire local attorneys because they can provide that access into those networks. And that actually leads to something I was expecting to talk about much later, but it's such a natural time. I mean, a huge part of your job is building relationships and establishing trust. I mean, what are the keys to doing that when you're dealing with a total stranger, and especially in today's age where so much is done by social media and electronic communications? Where's the place of the face-to-face communication today? Mm-hmm. I, that's a great question. I so and I even though I do work for Microsoft, I'm a person who quit Facebook almost four years ago. Um, partially I just felt like I was looking at my phone too much. Right. And that's, that's one of the challenges with tech is how we, well, it's, it can be good, you know, it's how we use it. And so it really reflects, it's a mirror of ourselves of how we utilize the technology. And, um, I have several small children, three small children. And so I try to not be staring at my phone when I'm around them and those types of things. I will tell you that the number one thing I do, whether, you know, my career, if I've been lobbying a, a legislation at the legislature, a rulemaking, or trying to uh, talk a high school into, you know, letting us stand up a computer science program uh, in their school. At all those levels, it's it is pure form. It's just advocacy. It's what we do as attorneys is we try to use logic and reason and emotion to convince people that they should come along on our path, right? For what we're trying to convince them to, not bully them, not berate them but talk them in logically into, you know, this is how I, you should settle with my client. Look at the numbers. This is a no brainer. And so when you're, you know, it's, it's purest form, it's just advocacy. That always has to start with trust. People won't listen to you if they don't trust you. And to me, that always starts with a face-to-face meeting. So if, if we're trying to pitch, you know, to Buffalo High School, hey, you should utilize this amazing Microsoft program. Maybe they would do it if we did a, a Skype or a, you know, tele commuted phone call. Um, but the fact is I'm going to drive up to Buffalo at four in the morning and I'm going to, so I can sit in that room. So they know I'm serious. So they know that, you know, who I am and that I, that I'm there, I'm available. They can trust me. And so I, I think there's absolutely no substitute in Wyoming for making that effort because what it signals to the other person is 
this is important to them. They drove all the way here to meet me. I really need to take what they're saying very, very seriously, or I've wasted eight hours of their life, right? And so if you're you know, trying to move legislation in the legislature, you need to go sit in the coffee shop in the hometown of the senator's vote you're trying to win, right? And I think that's just a 101 of Wyoming. And it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's almost like Mayberry that way. Would you say that those personal communication skills are still more important than, say, having social media or electronic communication type skills in Wyoming? I don't know if they're more important. I'd say they're all important. Um, you certainly, you know, you can't just say, well, I'm not going to connect with people through technology and on the Internet. Um, there's certainly a place for that. I would say that the vast majority of my relationship with my three older brothers happens on a recurring text that we just keep going with news articles and whatever. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. It, but having said that, I mean, it, it truly that in-person one-to-one piece is so important. I still remember when we were in law school and I can't remember if it was just a random Friday or whatever, but we were visiting and you were taking a mediation course. And you had already decided that you were not going to be a traditional lawyer. Um, is that part of the reason that you ended up going to D.C. after law school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. so that was a wonderful course. Amy Jenkins, I think, still teaches at the university. And, and I think, you know, so say we graduated almost 20 years ago. It's been a while. I think mediation has been much more accepted um, as, a, as a form of just resolution, conflict resolution. Um, but what that showed to me, you know, Amy was one of the first people I saw that I realized, Hey, you don't have to just go litigate with people or be a prosecutor or defense attorney or civil litigator. Um, there's so many jobs in the field of law. And that's, that's what I always tell folks is the smartest thing I've ever, ever done is get a law degree. Um, and it, because it, it carries impact into any job I go into, whether they're legal or not legal. And oftentimes when you work around non-attorneys, you're like triple, you know, you have triple stock of confidence and trust and weight with what you say. You know, lawyers, we often judge each other very harshly and, you know, it's, it's difficult to carry weight with them. When you speak to non-lawyers in a work setting, um, you carry quite a lot of weight to have had a, a JD. Um, moving to D.C. was a super interesting time. Um, honestly, my wife was intern- doing an internship for Senator Enzi one summer. And quite frankly, if she hadn't done that, I don't think I would have visited her and seen Washington, D.C. and thought, holy cow, you know, a lawyer can work here. Um, At that time, I met a gentleman, Andrew Emmerich, who I later found out was a cousin of mine, a distant cousin um, from a Casper sheep herding family like mine. But he was a counsel for Senator Enzi. And I thought, holy cow, you can be a lawyer for a member of Congress. You know, it's one of these little niche jobs in law that I just had no idea about. And I'd really been working for a, a local law firm where... Everybody seemed somewhat dissatisfied. They, the I guess the theme of it you would hear in, in variations was that, um, man, this is very stressful and it's very boring. And th- this was sort of a, a unique kind of trust civil practice. Um, but I thought, God, what a, what a terrible combo to be bored and stressed out all the time. You know, if, at least if it's exciting and you're stressed, that's, you know, you take that as it comes. And so, you know, really after that visit, I set my sights on moving to D.C., um, was able to uh, volunteer for a Craig Thomas campaign, and that sort of helped me get into Barbara Cuban's office, opening mail in my first job out of law school, which was, you know, endless ridicule from my classmates. Um, but over time, became her counsel and her legislative director and policy director. And, and when you're doing that in the U.S. House, it's wonderful. I mean, you're working on snowmobiles and Yellowstone, wolves, 
um, agricultural issues, endangered species, uh, healthcare issues, Medicare. Um, it was just it was just a wonderful experience. So was that a paid position when you said you were just opening mail? Yes, if you consider twenty one thousand dollars a year in Washington D.C. Um, a livable salary. Um, but it, it, the neatest thing was moving to D.C. was that I met more people from Wyoming living in Washington, D.C. because everyone, you know, from car dealers to ranchers to teachers all fly in, you know, with their national groups. They meet, they go uh, lobby the hill for their issue. And so it took me moving 2,000 miles from Wyoming to meet everyone in Wyoming. And that was a really amazing experience. And then when you move back, you truly know someone in every town. And so how long were you at that base level? If someone, you know, say considering a career, you know, following those footsteps, what can they kind of expect as uh, when they mm -hmm. enter a job like that, as far as a timeline to potentially move up and, mm -hmm. you know, what the hardships are of living on $21,000 in DC? Right. So I, I would say that people who want to pursue that sort of alternative path, you know, if it is in politics, I mean, there's many, many alternative paths. A lot of folks go into real estate development building homes, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things where a law degree really blends into those other passions. Um, but I would say there, there's simple things you can do. I mean, there's endless opportunity for any law student to intern for a state legislator. Maybe you know, maybe you don't, but you go talk to, you know, you just start asking around and someone would love to have your free law student advice, you know, as they're trying to read these bills and understand them. Uh, my wife, you know, in her first uh, intern, well, her first internship at the legislature was with Colleen, or excuse me, with um, Clarine Law. Uh, my wife was cleaning rooms in Jackson for Clarine, and Clarine sort of plucked her up in high school. And that's the other part is you can do these internships in high school and took her to legislature. And it's that whole mentorship piece where it opened up an entire new world for my wife. And there's no way she would ever be you know, a state senator in Wyoming at a young age, if Clarine Law hadn't sort of shown her that path. And so part of being in politics is who you know, but part of it is um, having the right people open doors for you, which is really, you know, we all take a hand up, you know, to bootstrap up into the world. You can never forget to sort of reach back and help others along that you don't even know for no reason other than you're going to maybe alter the course of their career. And just so our Listeners know Clarine Law is a very longtime Wyoming politician who also owns several motels and Jackson. I assume that's where Appy was cleaning rooms to yep, at the make that end. relationship. Yes. And so, what kind of skills did you pick up in Washington that you now use in your day to day mm -hmm. uh, work? So, the first one would be running a tight schedule. You know, I mean, people come in and and oftentimes you know you fly all the way to D.C. to talk to your congressman or senator. And the Wyoming delegation is far better than most, but a lot of times you might get a 15 minute meeting. And so you need to be very self-aware of your time, right? So I, what I learned a lot was how to use your time well in a meeting. If you have a 15 minute meeting and you spend 10 minutes talking to the congressman about the weather and how your daughter's doing, and then you start to talk about your topic and then they're off to vote, you've really blown it. Um, and so I learned First and foremost, you know, use your time well when you're with people and be very self-aware. Is the meeting an hour, 45 minutes, 10 minutes? You know, what's your time? And then pace in. Yes, you have to do the niceties, but then you need to jump into the topic. Um, the, the second biggest thing I learned was that there, you know, in the U.S. House, I mean, it's a wonderful place. There's 435 members of Congress, right? And you're, you're a sole member from Wyoming. 
So you team up with a couple people from Utah, one from Montana, one from South Dakota, and you try and, you know, have a caucus where you can protect sort of the Rocky Mountains, Rocky Mountain area's interest. That means there's, you know, 400 other offices doing different things and they're on their own agenda. And so you can constantly be drawn into what they're trying to do, you know, what their bill is, what they're doing. And it's, it was very challenging for years, but what I learned, I think the best was how to dial back and know what does your client want? And in that instance, my client was Congresswoman Cuban. What does she want me doing? And really read, you know, redialing back to like, what does my client want? And focusing on that issue, despite there's 400 other people trying to take you in 400 other directions. And that, that was wonderful for me when I got to the Wyoming Medical Society. You know, I ran a nonprofit trade association for Wyoming's uh, doctors and physicians you know, you want to partner with the hospital association and work together, but you don't want to do their agenda, right? You need to focus on what your doctors want you to do. And so that was very helpful for me to always dial back in these sort of broad public policy discussions of like, what does my client want? And focus on achieving that and co-opting other people to help you with your agenda, not not in a malicious way, in a, in a positive way, um, was probably the second, you know, biggest thing I learned. Um, and then, of course, time management. I mean, just how to juggle when there's more work to do than you could ever do in a week if you worked every hour of it. How do you prioritize the important things and accomplish those tasks so that on Friday night you're not sick to your stomach that you have to go into the office Saturday morning? And sometimes that just happens. But, um, you know, then that's probably true of any young lawyer who, you know, goes into a firm. But just how to manage your time and get very efficient at what you do. And I would think that, you know, something that litigators deal with all the time is animosity and anger and or opposing viewpoints. And I know that politics now are much more polarized than when you were in Washington, but I would think that you would have had to learn how to deal politely and respectfully with people who have very different and completely opposite views to you and still have a good conversation with them mm -hmm. and leave them not hating you or hating your client. Yes. I mean, that's, that's incredibly similar to litigation where you, you know, you, you can always win the battle, but you need to preserve the relationship. I mean, if you want to be an effective Wyoming lawyer for, you know, decades, um, you need to have good relationships and you can't burn those down just to win a case or to win one single battle. You've got to maintain that relationship. So as I, it's always been told to me, uh, style points are rewarded. So particularly in that public policy space. If you're, if you're working on legislation at the Wyoming Capitol, um, you want to kill a bill maybe because it's, you know, it's counter to your client's interests and that's fine. And you can go in and blow it up, you know, and, and leave a horrible, you know, burn bridges behind you. And then you go to the very next hearing and you have a different client with the exact same legislator. It's not going to work. I mean, you're not going to have viability and that's true of any, just even a traditional lawyer practice. So, you know, it, you certainly have to be professional. And as I said, style points are rewarded that you can kill a bill at an intellectual level, right? Sometimes emotional level, if, it, if, the, if it's a very emotional issue. Um, but win that, win that fight, but have everybody not hate you when you leave, you know? And, and that can be very difficult when I worked for the physicians. You get into um, social issues such as abortion, end of life. Oftentimes, the first thing um, social conservatives might push in a bill is to give a doctor a felony when they engage in an abortion or an end-of-life issue. And that can get your client a little riled that they're going to now get a felony because they're practicing medicine in their eyes. 
Um, so to, to navigate those waters and, you know, use your intelligence and advocacy skills to, to, you know, get the change you want, kill the bill, move the bill. Um, but at the end, everybody can still, you know, they respect you. Well, and that just kind of brought to my mind a thought of, you know, they always say politics make for strange bedfellows, but it would seem that you would occasionally find yourself in some pretty interesting situations where some very conservative people say, in terms of supporting tort reform, which is an issue that the Wyoming Medical Society would be very in favor of, also would be the Wyoming Medical Society would be very against a bill, you know, making it a felony to mm -hmm. do an abortion. So you end up needing to be able to communicate with people who are on your side on one issue and then ready to put your clients in jail on another issue. That's got to right. be a very difficult situation. That, that's all true. And then I'd even add that um, uh, typically, you know, our main opponent, I just do that with air quotes, would, would have been the Wyoming trials lawyers, right? And so... My first day in Wyoming back was working on a tort reform bill and I see a classmate of mine who's lobbying for the trial lawyers and, you're, and it's like, hey, what are you doing? You know, and you realize that you're pitted against one another and you're, uh, you know, and it's very high stakes of an issue like tort reform. But I, that's the beauty of Wyoming is that because of those relationships, you can both be above board, do your job as advocates and then you could go share a drink after. And I, and I was always proud of, of the relationship I had with the Trial Lawyers Association, largely Marsha Shaner, you know, Devin o um, Coleman. They were just wonderful, wonderful people to work against and still, um, you know, maintain a, actually a very good, not even disrespect, but a friendship. And I think that's a good lesson for all lawyers, but, you know, very critical for those of us in litigation or in public relations is to always remember that there's no reason to take it personally or to be ugly. We're all pretty much trying to advocate for our clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the Warren Buffett quote that, you know, it takes 20 years to build a relationship and five minutes to ruin it. So if you think of that, you'll do things differently. And it, it's truly in a five minute moment uh, during a trial, you know, you can ruin your reputation. And so that's, uh, it's certainly something you have to uh, focus on and, and make sure that you carry through and, and maintain relationships with folks. And so before you uh, went to work for the Wyoming Medical Society, you spent some time with a mediation firm in Denver. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did there? Yes. So they were based out of Dillon, Colorado. It was a group called uh, Meridian Institute, and it's a nonprofit sort of facilitation mediation group. And um, so when I left Congress, I, I moved to Colorado. And my wife began attending University of Colorado Law School. And um, it, was a, it was a very unique uh, firm. It wasn't the type of firm where maybe it's a retired judge that might come mediate a civil dispute. It was more in the public policy realm. So we would put in bids for you know EPA, largely government contracts, but um, EPA, Department of Defense. Um, and, and you try and come in and pull together, say it's a task force or a community group, um, and then really take that group together, who are all very busy people, meeting, you know, maybe once a month over a certain period of months and try and come to a resolution on very like complicated issues. So an example I'd give, my favorite one I worked on was at the Barry Goldwater Range, which is a, a air bombing range sort of uh, west of Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix. And this is where a lot of the uh, pilots are trained of dropping bombs, you know, and so you, you fly out there and there's arrows that are literally hundreds of yards long, go this way, you know, and so pilots are training out there. 
you had, so we had sort of the Department of Defense piece. We had the Sonoran pronghorn, which is an endangered species. They're this tiny pronghorn that can't cross a road, can't jump a fence. They eat cactus to get their water, but somehow they survive out in the middle of the desert. And they're sort of isolated in there. Um, so we had Endangered Species Act issues, which Wyoming knows very well of how that can sort of, if, if you know, it kicks in, it can shut down everything. In this instance, it was going to shut down the Department of Defense's main training place for bombing ranges. Um, and so as we got into the issue, we had the Department of Defense, we had the, the United States Fish and Wildlife, um, several other partners. Then you had to add in the Tohono O'odham tribe, who owns a gigantic amount of reservation land right along the border, where these animals live and the planes fly over. And we got probably a month into that issue before we realized we didn't have what is now ICE, but at the time, the, the Border Patrol, um, Immigration, Customs, and Enforcement. And so we had to bring them in because the, the migrants were working undocumented aliens. UDAs were walking across the border into the bombing range, thinking these towns that the Air Force is bombing are actual towns that they can walk to. And so it was, it was a wild and woolly issue where we sort of started with the Pentagon and we started with the Department of Interior and then we had to add in the Border Patrol and Department of Justice. And um, at the end of it, you know, it was, a, it was challenging because we sort of put out a, a, a task force report that, and this was sort of, it was um, put in statute by Senator McCain to try and solve. So we reported back to his committee and, you know, as it moves up through the levels, people sort of change what we agreed to as a group um, through the Pentagon, through the Department of Interior. And then when it gets to Congress, you know, you don't know if anybody even read it. But I will tell you, it was one of the more fascinating things I ever worked on to try and just connect these people, you know, come with ideas. And it was hard. I mean, all it was hard every inch of it. And at the end, you have a report that you hope doesn't sit on a shelf. But I just, I just found that so much more fascinating than the traditional practice of law. What I would think, you know, from hearing about that, one of the probably the most amazing things was realizing that you have all these different groups of people and you have to kind of help connect them and move them along, but that they all have valid points. Mm -hmm. um, how important would you say being able to listen to someone who disagrees with you is a skill of your work? Yeah, I mean, it's it's of the utmost importance. I almost, I almost feel I'm now 44 years old. One of the main things I've learned in the last, you know, 25 years coming out of maybe high school and, and through college and law school is that I don't know near as much as I think I know. And I almost feel like I know less than I've ever known, which sounds silly, but in a, at, a, at some level, it's a, it's a, a self-awareness piece that you, you think you're pretty hot stuff when you're younger. And as you get older, you know, and you make mistakes or you misunderstand things or you realize the value of, you know, quote unquote, being right isn't as valuable as, as the relationship or those types of things. And so, you know, as I've gotten older, I feel like the, the best thing you can do is listen because I don't know anything actually. And it, particularly when you go into a new case or a new challenge or problem, you know, to, to take it back to my new job at TechSpark, um, I don't know exactly what, I mean, I live in Cheyenne and I don't know exactly what our challenges are. So I've been out talking to the, you know, the, city councilmen and county commissioners and nonprofits. And I'm seeing Cheyenne in a completely different light than I did four months ago, which is amazing. Like at Thanksgiving, I thought Cheyenne was, I knew Cheyenne. I'd lived here for, you know, 12 years. Um, now it's like, I see a whole different side of Cheyenne that I don't even know, which really just parks, like kind of piques my interest to learn more. Um, and so I think if you take that sort of 
uh, growth mindset that you want to grow as a person um, and be a lifelong learner, I think that's the key that, you know, anytime somebody decided I've learned everything I don't need to know anymore, man, are you shutting yourself off from wild opportunities? I think that's great. I mean, the older I get, I would say the less I know for sure. And every day I seem to learn something that I was wrong about or should have been more open-minded about. Um, before you came back to Wyoming uh, and went with the Wyoming Medical Commission, you also worked kind of quote unquote as a, as a lawyer um, mm -hmm. in Colorado. Can you tell me a little bit about that and kind of the skills that you picked up there that you use today? And Sure. So in that instance, I had, had I left the Meridian Institute and went to work for Governor Owens, who was a Colorado governor for uh, two terms, sort of in the aughts decade. Um, amazing guy. I learned a, a, just so much from him. He, he was the sort of person that could see Colorado as a chessboard, and he was always like three moves ahead of everyone. And that was just one of the most intelligent people I've ever been around. Um, I worked in, in his personal office. I worked in his cabinet as the head of environmental protection and public health. But then I did go to the uh, attorney general's office under attorney general John Southers, who had just moved from U.S. attorney into the attorney general's office. And he ended up serving for 10 years in that role um, and was a deputy attorney general for him. It was a wonderful experience. I mean, the closest I've been to being a real attorney, you know, um, I was just tell Quote folks, I, yeah, I play one on TV, <laughs> right? And so... Um, that was a very scary experience for me because I all of a sudden had to be a lawyer lawyer and everybody assumed I was, except I knew I wasn't. I had been doing congressional things that um, have very little to do with law. And we all know when you come out of law school, that doesn't mean you know anything about practicing law. You might know what the law is. It has nothing to do with how do you land a client? How do you run a business? How do you you know do a deposition? I mean, very few of these things do you ever explore um, in a law degree. And so... Um, I was a deputy attorney general, did a lot of external affairs work, and then also managed the state services section, which was in that attorney general's office, was sort of all the parts of state government that don't fit anywhere. And so it was a very unique area of, you know, public public utility commission people, higher ed attorneys, you know, it's just wonderful. Uh, working in an attorney general's office is maybe the coolest place I ever worked. You get a badge, you know, I mean, how cool is that? Did you get a gun? No guns. No, no gun. So... Um, in that job, though, I honestly did more people management. You know, one of the big mistakes I think we make with attorneys, everybody does, is that if you're a wonderful attorney and you win case after case after case, what do we do? We promote you to manage attorneys, which has nothing to do with what you're good at or what you enjoy. And so you'll often find a successful attorney moves up and they manage and then they actually hate their job because they're not litigating. They're not doing the things that makes them tick. Um, and, but for me, I'm, I enjoy managing people. And so in that role, I, I did a couple cases, but I generally just managed, you know, there's about 55 attorneys and um, 30 support staff. And we represented over, oh gosh, 60 different parts of Colorado state government. Just an amazing experience. I mean, in that role, you get to see into every agency, you know, across the state. And uh, it was just a wonderful experience. And so, I mean, by any measure of success, you were extremely successful at that time where you've gotten in the Colorado Attorney General's office. How did you decide at that point, you know, to give that up and come back to Wyoming? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's always a, a 
challenge a lot of people face. You know, we you're up in Wyoming, and the first thing you want to do is just get the heck out, right? And and it's just like uh, you you move out to go to college, or you leave after college to go get a job, whatever that is. And there's just it, it's not that everyone comes back, but I do think there's a point, maybe, and I'm just making this up from my impression, but around ten years later. You just, you realize you've been out in the world, you've seen a lot of things, and it dawns on you that Wyoming is not that bad of a place, you know, that you might have thought when you were 18. Um, you know, you hate traffic, you hate crime, you know, that some of the places I lived in were, I mean, I, I lived in Washington, D.C. when they had the sniper that would, they would roll around in a team of two and just shoot people at my Home Depot. <laughs> and so you have those sort of crazy experiences, and it's it's super interesting. Um, but then you come home and, you know, in Wyoming that you're, there's no snipers rolling around. There's, you know, the crime is so much less. The schools are, you know, your child can walk to school. You don't have to drive them 30 minutes. Um, so there's all those things that draw you back. And so as, as my wife and I had our first of three kids, we just felt like it was time to return. And, you know, I've, I've always heard that half the lawyers in Wyoming live in Cheyenne. So I assume, you know, I don't know what it is that we all sort of flock to government, but um, I grew up in Casper, but coming back to Cheyenne seemed like the, the smartest place in terms of job opportunity. And how did you end up at the Wyoming Medical Association? Mm-hmm. So they, um, their director had left and they were seeking a new director. And so I just went through the normal process. I'd done quite a lot of healthcare work, um, both for Congresswoman Cuban and my time at the attorney general's office. And so it was a pretty natural fit. Um, what a neat client, you know, I mean, uh, doctors are a very unusual bunch. I mean, they're, I, I may get guff from attorneys by saying this, but I believe this to be true that, you know, any doctor could go be a lawyer. I know about three lawyers that could have the horsepower to go be a doctor. You know, they're just the smartest people and they, they could do anything. They could be a rancher, a fireman, a lawyer, but they happen to be a doctor, which is kind of the hardest thing to be. And so they were just wonderful clients. Um, you know, there's there's very few things that are as important as healthcare to people. I mean, you know, we're both very young guys that are um, generally healthy, but with our parents, you know, you go through these issues, um, doctors' visits, and so to it's all it's all very frustrating and challenging, and and you know, very expensive to be in a job where you feel like you're around the the people who know how to fix it. And then you're sort of empowered as their advocate to go to the policymakers and try and drive that message of here's what we can do to improve healthcare. That's just an easy job to go to every day, right? Like you, you get up and you know it's going to be challenging. It will be stressful, but it's not going to be boring. It's going to be very exciting and hopefully meaningful on the back end that you're, you know, I, I mean, I've heard the um, Dalai Lama say before, uh, we're only on this earth for 90, 100 years at the most. In that time that you're on the earth, you need to do good and make a difference. That's the and make other people happy, and that's sort of the purpose of life. And so, if you can find as an attorney a job where you're, you know, moving the needle in people's lives and making them better, that you know, it's stressful, but at least it's exciting and meaningful. When you started that job, did you feel like you had the complete skill set needed, or was there a lot that you learned on the job? Yeah, that was an interesting one because I had been only, uh, you know, coming out of law school, I'd been a federal government employee uh, in the legislative branch, and then I'd been a state executive branch employee in Colorado. And so that was my first step out, you know, out of government after almost 10 years. And so that was different. Um, 
even though it was a nonprofit, uh, I think anybody that runs a Wyoming nonprofit would tell you it's very similar to running a business. I mean, your own small business. And so I had a lot of, I had to learn a lot of event planning skills for conventions. Um, I had wonderful help from uh, people like Sheila Bush, who's now the director. Um, but you have to manage your accountants and, and the audits ask who has opened the mail, who's depositing the checks, you know. How's your board doing? You need to recruit a board member. Who's our speaker for the meeting? Have you passed tort reform yet? I mean, you would just get hit with all these things. And um, just that, that's also a wonderful job for an attorney. You know, if you if you aren't looking the traditional path is to go run a nonprofit. I mean, it's, it's wildly exciting, super meaningful. Um, the pay isn't always the best, right? But um, boy, it, it can, you know, that's offset by the flexibility of the jobs. And then just that you can have impact on your community. About how much of that uh, job would have been considered lobbying or public relations? Mm -hmm. So people focus on that quite a lot with the lobbying piece. Um, you know, the weird part about Wyoming is that we just have a sort of, you know, 40-day general session one year, and then we'll have a 20-day budget session in the other year. And, it's, and it rotates in this biennial sort of fashion. Um, so the actual days of lobbying in a year, you know, it could be 20 in one year and 40 in one year. And then you have this whole rest of the year. But the people who are very successful at it are working that almost year round. And so they're going to the interim legislative committee meetings and, and attending those. Um, to be effective, if you, you know, I had done a bill that um, allowed for dietitians in Wyoming to have licensure. Okay, so that just like a lawyer, a doctor, a barber. And... Um, we're able to pass that on our first effort. Um, when I worked on that though, I made sure to write the bill, you know, using the statutes that exist. So it was very normal. I went to every stakeholder healthcare provider group that could have possibly had an issue and addressed it. I took it to the um, administration information department at the state who would implement it and say, what's, what's wrong with this language? And they'd show me. And by the time we were running it through session, you know, it didn't start then it was, it finished then. We took it, you know, was introduced, and I think legislators thought something was awry that no one opposed at every step. And I would just shrug my shoulders because I'd done my work. I'd done my homework and made sure that, you know, I thought who would oppose this and went and took care of that so that it flew through. And it was like people almost hate, not hated, but disliked the bill because, you know, in Wyoming there's a sort of libertarian flair of, great, we're licensing barbers, now we're licensing this, we're licensing that. Um, but they couldn't find a reason to vote against it because I'd done all my homework. So it, it truly, you know, that sort of advocacy is a year round effort. And those skills or the ability to come up with that plan, was that a culmination of what you learned in your other work to that point? Or d did you have a mentor? How did you mm -hmm. come up with that game plan and execute? So this is kind of interesting. Most people would tell you they had this amazing mentor that taught them everything. I always laugh that I had no mentors ever help me ever with the exception of Governor Owens slightly because I, you know, I was a bit distanced from him and then Attorney General Southers helped me a little. Um, but generally I've had to always like jump in the deep end of the pool, have no idea what I'm doing, slop around for a while and then find my way through it. And, and I would tell you that that was horrible every time, but over time, then you build the skill of, self-reliance and self-ability such that um, the Microsoft job I'm starting now is, you know, it's a brand new national program. It's super challenging. I'm slopping around in it, you know, doing the best I can. Um, 
but I'm comfortable in that environment because I've been through it a bunch of times. And I know that if you just dive into things and bring passion every day and all your skills and just try to do a good job, um, it may not feel like it day to day, but over time you look back, you know, six months later, a year later, and you've come a long ways and you've really moved the needle in a positive fashion. Eventually you went out and you started Ellis Public Affairs, your own um, public relations company. Mm-hmm. How did you know that you had acquired sufficient skills to make a, a huge leap like that? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was a big deal for me because I was, you know, I'd been in government and moved to nonprofit. Now I'm just moving out of my own. And I have to note that my wife was pregnant with our second child at eight months. And so I called her while she was doing some litigation for the Wyoming Attorney General's office in Rollins, like some, you know, grazing case. I called her and said, hey, honey, I'm quitting my job, um, which is what every woman wants to hear, you know, in her ninth month of pregnancy. Of course. (laughs) So... I think, honestly, at that level, it was that I had a very strong, uh, smart person, Liz Brimmer, Judge Brimmer's daughter, who has done so many amazing things. And she she really took a light to me to say, you know, you can, you can start your own firm. You can do this and let's work together. And so it was really, like I mentioned before, it's really that, you know, reaching back and helping someone along that's easy for you to do, um, but changes the game for them. Um, and I don't know that people do that enough that you remember how many people have helped you along the way that you reach back. So I'm I'm always very conscious of that. So I felt like I had all those skills, but I didn't know I had those skills. I had to have someone, you know, in the business, tell me, step off the curb. It'll be fine. You'll get clients. And so, you know, it's not unlike a, a lawyer hanging their own shingle, you know, it's very hard and you, and you have to save money for that. And then, make this decision to be self-employed. I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing and it's not for everybody. Um, and there's great benefit that comes with that. And there's great strife that comes with that. Um, for me over time, even though I'm back in a corporate setting, um, I think that's where I operate best is, is a self-employed individual. Um, because I love the notion that if on Monday and Tuesday, you could complete all your tasks, now, having a self-employed guy, you have tons of 50-hour weeks and 60-hour weeks. I mean, that sort of thing happens. But, but what's very like comforting to me is that you would just put in the amount of work that's needed to accomplish the task and then be done. Um, it, in a government setting, it always felt like you had to sit at your desk until a certain time. And somehow you managed to fill your entire week with whatever work is there. Um, so I always love that notion that if I just you know, worked very hard on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, perhaps I'm just not going to work on Friday and be done. And you don't need to go to work for Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Perhaps you go for a hike or walk your dog or do something else. For me, it's just very enjoyable that you can work hard to produce a product, have the outcome for your client, but you don't have to sit at your cubicle and watch the minutes through the entire week until Friday at five o'clock. That's definitely one of the benefits of having your own firm. Did you have a built up clientele when you started Ellis Public Affairs or did you have to go out and get every client after you made that decision? So when you're when you're doing sort of a lobby consulting firm and I and I would we say public relations you know some people say public affairs um, in Wyoming a lot of those blend you know in Colorado you might find that there's a person who does just media relations and a person who just does community engagement and a person who just lobbies the legislature and that's wonderful but what what's neat in Wyoming is that if you have the skills to to reach across all those areas where you can help a client sit with the Casper Star editorial board, 
and touch that circle of influence. And then you can take them into the community and engage the community and meet with the head of the chamber and the rotary and talk at the rotary and do those kinds of things. But then go talk to the legislators. You know, I mean, all these things are intertwined and they're all sort of similar uh, spheres of influence in Wyoming. Um, if you can run across those, it's a wonderful thing. So, you know, when I started, um, I did not have a client. And I can tell you that it's very difficult to sit in a, a job where, like, I was running the Wyoming Medical Society and then try and recruit clients for you to jump into a new entity. They look at you like you're crazy. You can't, it's not doable. You have to be moved into the new job and you have to be that person before you can recruit clients. And so I um, had a hard time, you know, making that move. And then when I finally made the move, um, you know, the clients appear. If you're, if you work hard and bring that passion every day, I, I signed Johnson and Johnson as a client, you know, two months after I started, I mean, who would have thought they're, you know, fortune 25 or fortune 50. Um, and they needed some memo on something. And so, um, you know, it's, it, you have to save some cash, you know, you have to be very bold and then you have to network all over. I mean, the, the clients, it's just like any practice of law. The clients never come from where you think they'll come. You might do, you might do 10 different things of a, a radio ad, a media ad, you might buy, you know, sponsorships at the university of Wyoming, but the, the best client might come from your childhood friend who refers someone they met in college <laughs> So the main thing is just network wildly and, and then just kind of laugh at where the clients come from because it's never where you expect. How did you know what to charge for your time or mm -hmm. explain kind of how that process for someone starting on the business, um, how would you, do you bill hourly? Do you bill monthly? So there, there are, so, and I've moved generally out of the lobbying business with my wife in the legislature, but most lobbyists, um, there are some who do hourly. But I would tell you that the the very best clients expect a lobbyist that will charge them a flat rate, sort of a monthly retainer fee. And so if you think of, you know, in the traditional legal setting, that might be a corporate client, you know, like an insurance defense company. It might be a high net worth individual who just really likes you. You know, what a great client that they keep you on retainer to deal with whatever. Um, we just saw, you know. Trump's lawyer get raided by the FBI. He's that guy, right? Like he, he just works for Donald Trump. Um, and so typically with a corporate client, you would charge them a set fee a month. And if you, if you had enough value that you provided them, you, that's a, a fee you could charge year round. The challenge in the lobbying space is that if you do the set fee, they may just hire you for session, you know, to monitor bills. Well, that's wonderful. That's a great client for one month or two months each year, um, what do you do to feed your family the other 11 or 10 months? And so the very best clients are when you can bring them in and provide them value in this bevy of services. Yes, you do legislature, but you also can help them on media monitoring and, and response. You can help them on um, community engagement is more important than it's ever been. Um, you know, in Colorado, the, the real change in the industry down there has been from the capital into the local governments. Um, and so everybody is, dipping their toes in the water of being a community engagement person um, because it's so important there. And so, but when you, you know, those are all a lot of fancy terms, but when you boil it down, it's just truly advocacy. You're really just trying to help your client, you know, change the behavior of people or change the opinion of people. And maybe they're a legislator, maybe they're an editorial board. Maybe it's just a, a person that lives in the community near your operation. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just that very basic advocacy. What lessons would you, uh, or have you learned about 
overhead and kind of growth? How do you manage that when you're starting mm-hmm. out? So the, the wonderful part of you know, when I did LS Public Affairs is that, you know, the outlying cost was a laptop, a cell phone, which you probably already have, and then internet, um, which the library even has for free. So um, in traditional law, when, when people hire you, you can't roll up in a, you know, a Toyota Tercel with rust on the sides in a laptop and be like, hey, pay me 300 bucks an hour and I'll fix your issue. Nobody's ever going to hire that guy, right? Um, but with, with the nature of the lobbying practice, typically when clients come in from out of state, you're going to meet them at Starbucks. You're going to talk through what you're doing or at the Paramount Cafe, and then you're going to go to the Capitol when it's renovated and talk to legislators or talk to the governor or talk to an agency. I suppose clients think you have some fancy office with fancy leather bound books that, you know, and it smells of mahogany to quote Ron Burgundy. But at the same time, I literally have no overhead. I would have my laptop, my internet, you know, and then if any expenses I incurred on, you know, lunch or a dinner, um, that is not the same thing as opening a law firm and having a paralegal on a monthly, you know, salary, buying furniture, paying rent, um, as you did, Justin, in downtown Jackson. I mean, so, you know, in, in that instance, you need to, you have to deliver enough to cover your overhead and then you get to start earning. And so the, the nice thing of the consulting practice, and this is true of people in, you know, if you're a geologist or anyone um, in today's age, you can truly just have a laptop and internet and a cell phone and do just fine. And the, probably the best advice that I ever heard on starting a law firm was keep your overhead low so your bank account can grow and avoid those expenses so you absolutely need them, the yes. staff and the office and we, we even see it in healthcare where physicians, uh, count, mental health counselors and others, they will, because there's such a demand for them, they have gotten rid of their support staff and require that the patients submit their own insurance claims and have pushed all of those jobs onto the patients and they just tell them up front. And you'd be shocked how many patients are willing to go do their ad- administrative work and send in the insurance and deal with all that and they truly don't have any employees. And if you can operate a business without employees, I mean, there's so much less you have to earn every month to pay, you know, I mean, a a great paralegal can earn, you know, a lot of money. They're very expensive and they earn it. Um, But it's quite a thing to think of how can a a guy be a, or a woman be in a practice with no support staff and they just pay their rent and their internet bill and have a laptop. Um, It really eases the pressure of needing to like take care of 45 clients at once you know, because I think a lot of young lawyers is you you overload, you take on too many because you just are worried no one will ever come in. And then if you aren't meeting their needs, they're going to complain to the bar. And, and then you've got a whole different problem on your credibility and reputation like we talked about earlier. Absolutely. Um, so I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk kind of what advantage do you think having a law degree gave you in kind of ending up in a field of public relations mm-hmm. or public affairs? I So what's so interesting, I've worked in both offices with attorneys and then mostly not. And attorneys are very interesting. You know, we're a very competitive bunch. You know, everybody's, I don't know if they want to be the alpha, but everybody wants to be respected. And they, you know, it's a, it's a very competitive bunch. So say when I worked at the attorney general's office in Colorado, um, nobody really gave a crap that I was a lawyer, right? They don't care. They're a lawyer. I mean, they, they're sort of look at you like, why am I not in your job? Why are you managing me? It's sort of that attitude. 
And if someone got a $300 bonus and someone got a $280 bonus, they're in your face about why didn't I get the extra 20? I'm just as good as that guy. We're a feisty, we're a feisty bunch that goes through law school and into this practice. I would tell you that when you're a lawyer and then you're in a room with seven non-lawyers, everybody gives you extra credibility. They give you extra um, trust that you know more than they do. Not everyone does that, but I would tell you generally having a law degree and then being not around lawyers, people give you sort of a deference that is just doesn't exist in a law firm. So if you had to give advice to a third year law student who wanted to pursue a career in public relations, what say three things would you advise them to do that last year of school, you know, to kind of get their foot in the door to begin that career? Yeah. So I would say generally the, the first thing is you're going to just have to intern, right? You're going to like, maybe even before your third year of law school, you should take the time and go intern for, you know, one of our senators for the congressmen out there. They're always seeking good people. And even if you're a law student and apply, you're probably going to get in, right? And, it, and it's not that you're going out there and you're giving speeches on the Senate floor. You're, you know, back in the day, you'd be making copies and things. I guess we probably don't make copies anymore. But you give capital tours and all that. But what you do is that you spend time around people like Senator Brasso or Senator Enzi or Congresswoman uh, Cheney, and you get to see how that whole place operates, you know. I mean, for me, that was the game changer. Getting Going out there and just opening mail for someone, getting in the door. It's almost like a fraternity or sorority. You just want to get in the door, you know, and you can be president later, but you got you to gotta start at the start. Um, for people who don't want to go to DC, the Wyoming Capitol, there, you know, go approach a, a senator, go approach a legislator you, that you respect, that you like, or that represents your district. It's Wyoming. You probably, you just know them, right? They're a family friend or something. Go intern for them or extern for them. Um, you know, I spent time in Cheyenne, um, interning with Judge Johnson and that was great. But instead of maybe doing the judge route, go work for a legislator and get in that scene and, and you will meet all the, the people who are doing the jobs you want to do, right? If it's a, if it's a lobby job or if you want to go to DC and, and the amazing thing, you know, when you, when you do that DC route, um, man, the people that, you know, when they come out of those offices, everyone does such remarkable things. I mean, I have friends that are in the CIA, they're at the state department, they're the department of interior, you know, they're at the EPA. And so it's like you go into those jobs and learn things and then just go out. Now, the other thing you can do is go jump on a campaign. So we have, you know, right now, all sorts of people running for secretary of state. You know, all five statewide electeds are up. The governor's office, um, Senator Brasso, uh, Congresswoman Cheney. Go volunteer in a campaign. Go meet those people. Um, you know, that's a great way. If you, if you sign up and work hard and help someone be elected governor, you're probably going to go get a job in their office and be a policy advisor or somewhere. And so um, that's a, that's a wonderful way to get in. Very cool. And uh, kind of switching from that, uh, what is some of the worst advice that you hear being given to younger beginning public relations professionals? Well, that's a, that's a challenge in Wyoming is that um, there, as I mentioned earlier, I, I had very few mentors until later in life. Um, and so I don't know that there are a ton of mentors that can reach out to these folks to even give them bad advice. But I would say the good advice is that, you know, when you're doing media relations, you know, being an attorney, it sounds silly. Don't ever lie. Always be honest. It's always going to catch you. You should never do it. And it sounds silly to say out loud. But, you know, in high school, I worked in a firm where 
we were always running the edge of things. Everything was fine. It was all ethical. It was all legal, but it wasn't quite right. And so, you know, I would be sent to, you know, mail some discovery package at the one mailbox in Mills, Wyoming, that is picked up every third day just to slow it down two days, but meet the rule, but kind of screw the other guy, you know? And that really turned me off to law. I mean, I, after I worked in a law firm in high school, I thought that I'm not going to be a lawyer. That's a horrible, I hate that. And, um, but then over time, and I think someone just gave me a book that talked about all the careers you could do with law. And so, um, you hope people aren't turned off by, you know, a bad experience like that, because just cause you worked in a bad firm, doesn't mean you can't start a great firm. So in your career, have you had a failure or an apparent failure that has set you up for a later success? Yeah, I have made a ton of mistakes through the years. Um, I don't even know how to begin to think of them. I would tell you, uh, there was one specific one when I worked in Congress, an issue called Martin's Cove, and it's a, it's a BLM piece of land that's very uh, important in the um, uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Church. It's part of, you know, people would do the Pioneer Trail, and there were folks who had handcarts, Mormons who had handcarts, who uh, were stuck there during the winter right by Independence Rock. And it was, it's a very, it's a very big part of their religion. It was a very sad instance where people, you know, were caught in the winter and, and many people died. Um, we had worked on legislation to try and transfer that to the church. Um, and in return, money would be paid, would go to the trail center in Casper and try and support the, you know, tourism and whatnot. And it was one of those issues where, um, we just got crosswise with everybody, you know, the deal didn't happen. And so everybody, it felt like at the time, it felt like everyone in the LDS church was mad at us. I mean, we had the, the president of the church sending his emissary to yell at us, maybe deservedly, the folks who didn't want that land to come out of public hands mad at us. And it, it felt, um, you know, looking back, this was, you know, 15 years ago, it felt kind of like you blow a tire. So then you sort of overcorrect and then you over overcorrect and then the car starts flipping and then it blows up and then you're on fire. I mean, it just felt like it couldn't get worse and then it would get worse and worse and worse to where we'd isolated everyone in the issue. Um, and so that was a huge learning experience of, you know, maybe don't overcorrect or, you know, if things are going wrong, jump on them quickly and set them right. Because if you ignore them, they can, they can truly snowball and get double worse and quadruple worse, you know, and on and on. Um, so I can laugh about it now, but it was a, a horrible experience for probably nine months of my life. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what value when you're working in public relations, do you try and provide to your clients? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, often when I meet, meet with a potential client, I want to really dial in on what they're trying to achieve. Because oftentimes, I mean, this is true of any lawyer talking to any client, if they don't have a focus on what desired outcome they have, you're going to probably not deliver it, right? Because you're going to be guessing. And so even, you know, Typically when I sign clients, a lot of that is because I treat them like they're a client already and I jump right into the first meeting, which is like, what do you want? What are you trying to do? Well, how do you do that? And then really press them on all sorts of issues because I, you know, again, back to the reputation piece, I would never, ever want to take on a client that's trying to do 
something in public policy that I don't agree with or I don't want my name attached to. So you have to screen for that. But I would tell you in the process, you tend to sign clients because you, if you can move them past the, who you are and they're interviewing you to the point where you're interviewing them and they can see like, oh my gosh, like we're already, we're finally moving, making progress to, towards my goal or whatever my boss wants me to do in Wyoming. Um, typically these folks don't have staff in Wyoming. You know, they have an economic interest here. Maybe it's an energy company, you know, maybe it's a healthcare company, a nonprofit. And so they need help in Casper or Rollins or the legislature, but they're not going to hire a full-time person to do that. And so that's where I would sort of find my little niche of being a part-time employee for them plus other clients, right? That are all paying at this sort of monthly retainer. Um, but once you dial in on what they need, then you can build a plan out. And it's pretty simple from there in, in terms of public policy is that you look for what's the end goal, you know, and, and I always relate it to like sort of a political campaign, like, well, the election day is November 3rd and we want to win, right? Okay. So that's our outcome. That's our goal. Let's walk back and let's say, what do we need to do to get there? And, and so it's not so different in public policy that, oh, we want to change this rule so we can utilize this new technology we have and nurses can apply it right now. Only doctors can. Okay. So we define that and then we go see who are the decision makers? What, what do we need them to do? And then let's walk it back to today. What are the steps to get there? And, you know, if you're in a, in a client interview and you do all that, they're going to hire you. <laughs> you know, they're going to walk out of there and think, okay, we just fast forwarded like a month. Let's hire this person. And, um, you know, that's a key piece. And so the last thing I want to talk about is public relations or lobbying has a relatively low barrier to entry, meaning that's not a highly regulated field. There's not a lot of insurance requirements. I mean, like you said, you can get in with a cell phone, a laptop, mm-hmm. and an internet connection, which has to lead to a huge gap between the professionals at the top and, to be kind, the not-so-professionals at the bottom. In your mind, what are the key characteristics that the top individuals in the public relations business have that allow them not only to charge a premium, but to command respect of other professionals outside, of command the respect of doctors, lawyers, mm-hmm. the other professionals that are intermingled in the work they do. Yeah, I mean, you know, the issue you laid out, it's not in like, you know, most lawyers run into this maybe with realtors where, you know, you're working on a property mm-hmm. deal and you're and you look at it and think, are they like are they practicing law right now? You know, and, and so like that it's sort of like that. So you get into lobbying, the, there's very little practice law. I mean, when I worked in the District of Columbia, you can generally from any district wave into the bar, right? And I did that. But there's also an exemption that anyone in Congress is exempted from the practice of law and they don't need to be licensed because every day non-lawyers are writing laws for <laughs> for the United States Congress or for their, their representatives. And so there's just a blanket, you know, exemption. Well, we don't have that here. Um, but I would tell you, you know, and there's it's sort of a mixed bag, but generally everyone is very respectful and whatnot. But I would run into situations where as an attorney, I always felt like I had to uh, act at a higher level, or I don't know, a higher level, but I certainly had to comply with our professional code of conduct, ethics, rules, uh, statutes. 
And so I was, I was trying to hold myself up to a bit higher bar. And I think most every attorney, you know, there's, there's quite a few attorneys that do work in the lobbyist space, but they're, they're probably still a minority of people who do it. Um, but the con, you know, client conflicts, I mean, that, that is more prevalent, I think, to an attorney or it, it, you're trained to watch for that better. And so I do think you see people that uh, will run into, they'll have multiple clients that maybe have different agendas and they're all sort of on the same legislation. And you, you'd see some of those representatives maybe just not even show up to a hearing because can they talk for client A, client B, or client C who all have different opinions? So maybe they just don't even come. And how they report that out to their client, you know, out of state, what happened in that room, you know, I, I guess that's, I just assume over time that catches up to people. You know, if you do a bad job or you're acting perhaps unethically, that'll catch up to you and your clients, you won't have clients, right? Um, and that's probably just true in law generally. Um, but I would say, you know, the, every attorney I worked with at the legislature was very cognizant of, you know, conflicts and all, and, you know, they carry over exactly like they would in a federal court setting into the state legislature. And I loved that Wyoming. I would say that wasn't the case in Colorado. And I would think being an extremely small state that probably faster than other places, the cream will rise to the top and kind of like the bad behavior or, as you said, you know, conflicts of interest, things like that, much harder to kind of hide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and then there's folks that just work for a single client, and I did that too, you know, working for an energy company. And that's a, that takes away a lot of the conflict issues. Um, you know, and so people pick their different paths. You know, some want to work for someone and some want to work for themselves. Um, but I, but the, the beauty of the Wyoming Capital, I always felt like it was just generally ethical. <laughs> and I can't say that a D.C. You know, in D.C. people were very, they would speak in rhetoric um, very passionately. You know, I, I watched an instance on the House floor where a gentleman, you know, just ripped a Wyoming bill up and down that we were thought we were going to pass on school lands. I can't even tell you what the bill was about and just ripped it up and down. And so then as you know, I worked for a Congresswoman Cuban, we go to the ante room off the floor and it's just like, everybody hugs each other. It's rhetoric for your party, but we're off. We're not in C-SPAN. We're, you know, we're okay. And you know, you watch that and, and, and you understand that there's people who speak in rhetoric. They understand that it's rhetoric and then there's what's real. But at some level, you kind of feel like, well, the, but isn't the rhetoric kind of lying? Like, isn't it <laughs> you're telling things that aren't true? And so it was great to see all that. But what I love at, in Wyoming is that you don't hear a lot of rhetoric. You hear people say what they think and they believe what they say. You may not agree with it. But they're honest about their feelings and what their intents are, and um, that's just really special. Like that, I don't know that that exists everywhere, but it, it's here. Well, that is definitely uh, good to hear, and I think on that note, it looks like we're exceeded our time a little bit, and so we'll probably call it a day. I'd like to say thank you very much, uh, Dennis Ellis, for being here on the first Wyoming Law Pod, and hopefully this will get some traction and we'll give some people some entertaining CLEs. That sounds great, Justin. Thank you so much for having me.